If you're an American listening to this, it's almost inevitable that at least some of your ancestors came from someplace else. And when they did, as we all know, they remade the country around them. They planted old seeds in new soil, and they created something new. Of course, we all know that from grade school, right? It's a big part of our civic culture. But what's easy to forget is that the process is still going on, and its most important front lines are not the border that we see in headlines, but in the kitchens, after-school centers, and community programs of cities like Houston. People were in the process of becoming Americans right before my eyes, and their stories were riveting. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbein, and today we're going to talk about what we can learn from recent immigrants and what studying immigration can teach you about why America is how it is. Our guide is Claudia Kolker, the editor of Rice Business Wisdom, the ideas journal from Rice Business. She was an overseas reporter for years for publications from the Houston Chronicle to The Economist. And when she came back to Houston, she realized that fascinating new customs were taking root. With me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro, Chief Innovation Officer at Texas Monthly. Hi, Saul. I'm glad to be filling in for my colleague, Carlos Sanchez, who had such a fascinating conversation with Claudia at South by Southwest. Carlos is the lead political reporter from Texas Monthly, and he sat down with Claudia to talk about a side of immigration that people don't usually discuss. Tim, what do you feel like Claudia added to the immigration debate? Well, she added to it by sort of avoiding it. She makes clear that she isn't talking about public policy. She's talking about people and what makes immigrants special and also what unites all of America's different streams of immigrants. And at a time when immigrants get objectified, the word is thrown around a lot, people get grouped together across political lenses, she really reminds us in this book and in this discussion that we're talking about human beings here, relatable human beings that all of us can learn from. Right, and we might say that America is the product of that process happening millions of times. Now, Tim, you grew up in San Antonio. Um, You have spent your life in Texas. You travel around the state for your job a lot. During all that time, you've seen the immigration debate morph in the national consciousness into being something that is just about what's happening on the southern border. Yeah, I think at the moment, it's when you say the immigration debate, often that gets focused on the wall right now or what's happening on the southern border when really the immigrant experience is so much broader than just how we're sort of talking about at this political moment. And one of the things that people learn who have spent time on the border, as Carlos did when he was an editor in McAllen, is that there's a very vibrant cross-national experience that people don't fit easily into one national category or another. And that's also indicative of this larger immigrant experience that Claudia saw in places like Houston. Right. And for Claudia, that connection becomes very, very personal. So you got your start on this topic as a reporter in Houston. Um, Tell us a little bit about that journey. Okay. Well, the background is really, I got that start from working in a lot of countries as a reporter. I lived in Central America and Mexico, and I always traveled a lot. When it was time to come home to Houston, 
I fell in love with the city. And the first group of people that made me think, I'm going to live here, was the Vietnamese community of Houston. And they had just arrived, uh, really just 10 or 20 years before, there were people still arriving from re-education camps. And I, as a reporter, started to write about these newcomers, and I tried to learn Vietnamese too. So my Vietnamese instruction didn't go so very well, but I had a teacher who began to also embrace me and show me about her life in her community. And she taught me things about child rearing and about nutrition and food and the Vietnamese idea of food and saving money. And that's really got me hooked into that community was observing her incredible practicality and savvy about saving, which is not an American strong suit. And so I fell in love with that community and then wanted to emulate much of that community. So it's easy to get pulled into current refugee crises and forget that we've been here before over and over. Virtually all of our families came here from someplace else, and it's not going to shock you to know that a lot of them came in situations of some crisis. I mean, if everything's going great for you in the old country, you're probably still there. And I know this point gets made a lot, especially with regard to usually people talk about Italians, Irish, Jews. They faced a lot of really vicious racism in this country, and then gradually they were accepted as white. But Claudia had a piece recently in Houstonia about another group of European immigrants that people don't talk about as often in this context, who also came under pretty harsh conditions and who also ended up really reshaping the country around themselves. Yeah, that pattern is something she talks about. Facing waves of backlash from previous immigrant groups is part of the immigrant experience every time. That on its own contributes to the American experience. And Claudia specifically talks about this pattern with the Scots-Irish. Well, I would say, you know, if you look at our society, what we've got was impacted by immigrants, just a different generation. Um, for one example, the Scots-Irish have had a huge impact on the United States, in including me. And I don't have a drop of Celtic blood, but when you have a group that comes here with powerful traditions that help to build this country, as every immigrant group has, they're going to affect everybody. The Scots-Irish have been extraordinary in their way of adapting to the American environment and American wilderness. So these are uh, a, a very mingled ethnic group that roamed between Scotland, Ireland, and England for centuries in a state often of, of great chaos and warfare. And Many made it over to the United States in the 18th century. Right. So this is interesting. These people were pretty instrumental in the pantheon of American founders, including in Texas, Sam Houston, Davy Crockett. And my grandfather was from a similar group of people in the Arkansas Ozarks. He grew up eating his share of squirrel. So this makes a point about today's crisis. I mean, people tend to think that there are economic migrants and refugees, and those are separate categories. But in pretty much all of the cases she's going to give us, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, it is a lot more complicated. Political refugees can also be fleeing collapsing economies. That's not just in Central America, but also for a lot of our ancestors. Think about it. America was both land of opportunity and land of freedom. And those two things are not always separate. And I like that we're starting with the Scots-Irish because there's a real economic migrant story here that often gets forgotten. At the end of the 18th century, these people were living in this frontier zone, getting pushed around by other groups. And gradually, as the Industrial Revolution started, the old clan lords and noblemen started to get replaced with a new group of people, entrepreneurs, 
who took over the common pastures that the Scots-Irish peasants used to farm, replacing them with sheep, which they could use to make wool to feed into the mills and make money. And suddenly you have all these people who are homeless, can't make a living, and they land in America and no one wants them around, and so they start moving out west. They were considered uneducated, dangerous, violent, extremely poor, and they were edged out. And they did end up ultimately in Texas, among other places. So the Scots-Irish uh, brought many things, but one of them was an ability to learn from those around them. They picked up the survival skills of the indigenous woodsmen of the United States. And as they go, and they're kind of running a lot of them from the society behind them, the government follows behind, establishing new states in the territories that they're moving to. And gradually, the United States itself starts to take on this frontier character that they helped bring. You know, another group that was foundational to Texas is the Germans. For a long time, there were big German-speaking populations here. For example, after JFK was killed, the first foreign head of state to come to the U.S. was from Germany. And locals were able to receive the German chancellor in his own language. This sent a really powerful message to the international community. Yeah, and there's a deep history there that would ultimately shape our culture here, too. And a lot of these European migrants are descended from what we'd now call pro-democracy activists. I mean, back in 1848, there was a movement, we might call it the European Spring, of democratic and socialist uprisings across Germany, Poland, the Czech Republic, and they all failed. And after that, a lot of activists and their families moved to America, and specifically to Texas, and they brought their ideas and their customs. And in the case of the Germans, they started building these very orderly towns, and there's one public building that always went in first. The kindergarten. The kindergarten. And why would a group of new immigrants want to create a kindergarten? Well, kindergarten is about teaching the next generation. It inculcates young kids in the culture of their homeland and helps them resist assimilation. It also reinforces values of family and community. And it probably also helps, or did help, the economy of a new colony to not have the children constantly underfoot. So it was a little bit practical. And that gets us into another blurry thing about immigrants, the way that family, friendship, and economy, work and life, you might say, kind of get merged and make this rich support network. And the mutual support, of course, goes two ways. You can expect to be helped when you need it, and then the expectations you give support when someone else needs it. And in a weird way, it sounds like that would kind of create some accountability to help you reach your own goals. What really struck me about Claudia's book is that an almost universal way that immigrants in America, if they're successful anyway, find ways to buy into the culture is by actually buying in. They scrape together the capital somehow, and they develop really interesting folkways around how to do that. And as they do, they shape the larger culture around them. Yes, Claudia talks a lot about this. There is a cross-cultural practice that she discovered, but really in the Vietnamese community in Houston. Oh, right. The Savings Club between close friends and family. So how does that work? The Savings Club, which is a small group, gets together, and every month, everyone brings $200. Cash, no checks, no IOUs, no excuses. And January, it all goes to me. February, it all goes to you. March, all goes to Claudia, and so on. Each month, one person in the group walks away 
with $2,400 in cash or more, but $2,400, which is enough to pay for a plane ticket to bring someone, a family member from Vietnam to live with you, your elderly mother, or it's enough to start on the down payment of a little space for a nail salon or a tiny little hole-in-the-wall restaurant. But $2,400 total is equal to $200 per month. Why don't I just save the money myself? Why do I need this whole group? What's the difference? Well, the idea here is that the community around savings clubs encourages people to save above and beyond their typical comfort levels so they can achieve more than they would have done on their own. Right. And that also means that every person in the group can plan for it. I mean, it can be a real hassle to get together all of that cash. But when you have the $2,400 in front of you and you haven't had to pick away at it from little expenses throughout the month or throughout the year, then you can bank on it and you can actually do something with it. Yeah, I mean, and it's an infusion of cash. So you're getting a lump sum, which can be really valuable. One of the things that really struck me from Carlos's interview is the idea that it is customs like this that literally built the structure of Houston, the banh mi shops and the nail salons for the Vietnamese community, and a lot of similar practices for other immigrant communities. And when you go to Houston and you see the nail salons there and our fabulous world-famous Vietnamese restaurants, many of those were started with this seed money, this capital from people who were newcomers, they couldn't get credit, they didn't speak the language, and they were broke. But using their reputations, their relationships, and their determination to preserve their friendships and never, never default on their friends, they were able to scrape together interest-free loans, sometimes called friendship loans, with which they could change their lives. The savings clubs are the basis of micro-lending practices that are popular now in third world countries, but they're happening right in our own backyard, just in a slightly different way. So $200 a month is one thing. I mean, are there more high roller savings clubs? Probably. And I imagine that the social parts of those are high roller as well, because every gathering to pool money is also a social occasion with food, friends, fun. It's, it is social. And what's fascinating about that, I mean, in really material terms, is you turn your social capital into a way to get around your lack of financial capital. Your community, in this case, is real economic value. Yeah, and there are other examples where social capital creates community value. If we can switch gears to Latin America, we can talk about the practice of la cuarentena, In Chiapas in southern Mexico and in parts of Colombia, the rates of infant mortality are really high. But postpartum depression is almost unknown. That's because the poorest of the poor have this practice. When a new mother has a baby, the whole village steps in to make sure she doesn't have to do anything, literally anything, but learn to take care of the kid. A cuarentena is related to the word quarantine, but it's a good kind of quarantine, or in my book I call it the gentle quarantine. It's an extraordinary practice that the poorest of the poor use in Mexico and Colombia and in a lot of iterations all over the world, except for the United States. It's a practice to take superb care of mothers in the first 40 days after having a baby. And in the countries that use it, in the traditional societies where it's still very serious, for example, in Chiapas, um, which is the poorest part of Mexico, highest rate of child mortality, it's a very, very difficult place to live. It's very culturally rich, but very materially poor. Making it through infancy can literally be a matter of life and death. If a mother is incapacitated 
or dies of, of a hemorrhage or a fever, which are all very likely after childbirth in a developing place, her kids are in danger. So this is serious business. But for the mother, it's a delight. So Tim, walk us through it. What happens in a quarantena? For 40 days after childbirth, the new mother doesn't work. She's not allowed to even touch a broom. And there are serious taboos and superstitions against it. She's not allowed to have any stress. No people around with bad vibes. Someone is always cooking for her. She is just totally pampered for these 40 days. So you're never alone. There's always someone attending to you. You only have two jobs. You have to get to know your baby and learn how to breastfeed that baby. And you've got to rest. Everyone around you, your, your village mates, your friends, your family, are pampering you. And you're not allowed to touch a broom. If you touch a broom, you could invite evil spirits to come sweeping into your home, infecting and harming your whole family. You're not allowed to do it. Someone else is doing it for you. But you do have two responsibilities in the first 40 days after your baby is born. You have two jobs besides breastfeeding and resting. You have to get your massage from the home visiting professional massage therapist. And you have to go to the special aromatherapy sauna for new mothers in a special hut on the side of the hill with eucalyptus and rosemary and other delicious smelling herbs. Your friends are waiting for you. The sauna mistress is there. And you have to sit there and relax and be told dirty jokes until you laugh your head off. And if you don't do that, you're not a good mommy. Or, and I'm just throwing this out here, you could stay at home for months all by yourself before going right back to work. In a lot of ways, it's the opposite of America. They're materially poor, but they have an intact community. In a lot of ways, people who stay home and are surrounded by all this care and support, they end up better off. You said this has a real effect on postpartum depression? Yeah, postpartum depression is not even discussed really in Chiapas. While there are certainly other health risk factors at play at this stage of life for both, the mothers and the baby, it's clear that quarantena does help reduce some of the stress that contributes to postpartum. So you can imagine what a lovely, relaxing experience this is for new mothers who are all over the world at risk for postpartum depression. And there are risk factors that make it worse. So they get enough rest in Chiapas. They'll get rest. They're with loved ones. There's low conflict. They're in their home. There's not a lot of change. And these things buffer against some of the risk factors of postpartum depression, which is likely one of the reasons why, although there are many, many illnesses and serious problems in that part of the world, postpartum depression is not talked about as one of them. Well, I mean, is it possible that they're just not identifying postpartum depression? Like they don't know what it is? Maybe the whole construct is American and they have it, but just don't know to call it that. I don't think that's the case. And we know that a lot of these immigrant moms came to the United States for their second kids. And that time, when they weren't surrounded by a quarantena, they did get postpartum depression. It may be that a lot of postpartum depression is situational not biological, that it comes from being stuck in the house, isolated and alone after this really difficult period of your life. Claudia and Carlos talked about a funny thing that happened among some Mexican women in Ohio. A surprising group of people stepped in to help. Who? Their husbands. So these 
extremely hardworking guys were there with their extremely hardworking wives. When the time came to have a baby, these women were, they often quit their very low paying jobs and focused on the health of their babies and themselves. But that was only possible because their husbands took over the women's work, which is what the quarantena frees you from if you're a new mother in Chiapas. Normally you have 10 villagers and 10, 10 sisters and your mom. Here it was their husbands and their husbands, in addition to this heavy, heavy labor they were doing, were making the atole. Wait, so is this a big deal? It really is because these are really macho dids. Back home, they would never have been caught dead doing, quote, women's work or housework. And a lot of them were not good at it. Culturally, it's unusual for them to do these roles. But in this case, they, for whatever reason, happily accept it. They were doing the dishes inadequately sometimes. And some of the husbands said, you know, my, my wife was sitting there in bed telling me I was doing it all wrong. And I said, I'm doing it wrong, but I'm doing it because you must rest. And they were sweeping. And as I mentioned, sweeping has this very symbolic um, uh power in in these communities. And one guy was saying, I was sweeping out my front steps and uh, a woman, an elderly woman from my community saw me and she made fun of me. And I said, this is America. I am taking care of my wife. If a man needs to sweep the steps, a man needs to sweep the steps. And they were they were proud to have picked up this confidence about helping with the house and taking care of their women and letting their women rest. And they had learned a lot of that confidence from Americans, whereas at the same time, they had the utter confidence that as family men, they had to take care of a new mother. So I think if there's one immigrant hallmark that we keep coming back to, it's this notion of families taking care of each other. Yes. And there's a component in which families take care of each other in the sense of housing. And we see this particularly with Jamaican families. They have managed to achieve a very high rate of homeownership despite lower income. Here's Carlos and Claudia on this subject. So I want to visit one final concept, and that is by taking a trip to Jamaica and getting a sense of multi-generational living. What, tell me about that. Well, um, the, the short answer is multi-generational living is what people all over the world do, which is you live with your parents even as an adult, and you you share household responsibilities, whether your responsibility is getting an advanced degree or actually helping bring in income or cleaning up, um, it can vary. But you know, tra- traditionally, since the 60s in an American culture, if you were living with your parents, or if you were living with your parents past adulthood, that was seen as a problem, a failure to launch. In America, pretty much uniquely. Around the world, it's but I like my kids and I like my parents. What's the problem? You know, it really is strange how we treat this in this country. I mean, virtually everywhere else that I've traveled or reported, you live with your parents at least until you're married and maybe longer. Yeah, and to be clear, when Claudia spoke with Jamaican immigrants, they were very clear about how hard it is to live in such close quarters, even with and maybe especially with your family. But they also knew that it would allow them to live a much better life. Jamaicans take it one step beyond, which is I like my kids or I like my parents, and I want my kids to go to school in that zip code, which is far above my income level, because I'm a first-generation immigrant, and I'm already doing two or three jobs. 
But if I live with my adult brothers and sisters, and maybe we jam into the house with some kids, and grandmother is there to take care of the kids while we are all going to night school, my kids can go to a really good school in a, a zip code that is really above our, our individual tax bracket. Not only that, we can pursue pretty serious dreams, such as getting a master's degree. That would be impossible otherwise for a first-generation immigrant. And of course, meanwhile, the grandparents are doing their universal job of passing on family stories and gossip and emotional baggage to the grandkids. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of research that says that being around grandma is good. Kids who, who have lots of exposure to their grandmas are more stable and even have better cognitive outcomes a lot of the times. It really, there's a pronounced grandmother effect. So it's kind of win, win, win. And the interesting thing is, is that when I first researched this about 10 years ago, it really was pretty unusual for non-immigrant Americans to happily and voluntarily share housing together. Now it's much more common and it's not only economic. It's there's a renewed idea, probably starting from economics, but also the millennials like their parents. It doesn't seem weird to share a household with people you love. And if grandmothers can be involved in the mix, all the better. This reminds me of when we were talking about those German kindergartens in Texas, you know, creating community support systems that also help keep the children occupied. Right, but it does more than that. Having the whole family there means grandma isn't sitting in the house alone and depressed. Kids are more supervised, so they're not getting into trouble. And mom and the sisters can get master's or professional degrees and jobs. They can start businesses all of which grows both the family and the larger economy. So let me ask you then a bit of a contentious question. From your perspective, as somebody who's grown up in this state, who works for the National Magazine of Texas, there's this idea in human geography and politics, which has become a bit of a dirty word in some sectors, of chain migration, which is, frankly, how a lot of our families came here. One person came, they sent money, they sent word, then their relatives and friends came and they did the same thing. That's how my family got here. Um, is that then a force by which that community can get on its feet faster? Well, that's an interesting question. I think there's a concern that more immigrants might mean more strain on social services, but there is also a conversation around the idea that if more members of an immigrant group gather, the more the group is able to support itself and grow wealth in this country. So tell me about one more. Tell me about the reason why East and Southeast Asian kids seem to perform so much better in school. Yeah, there's a very common practice in East Asia and Southeast Asia of after-school programs that help prepare kids for the material they're going to face in school. Claudia learned about this, and she ended up trying this, a version of this for her own family. She hired an Indian woman to do online algebra tutoring for her daughters. And they started to feel more confident, like they were suddenly good at math. Let's uh, shout out to Peter Rodriguez's previous episode. Teleconferencing is not just a disruptive force in teaching. It can be as effective as in-person instruction. Um, and as live performance becomes ruinously expensive, just remember online classes are a great option. I used it. And I can't afford full-on after-school school, and I don't believe in it myself. But what I did find was for truly a pittance, it was $10 an hour at the time, um, a wonderful tutor with a company, and she happened to be in South India, Tess. She was our adored math teacher for my little girls for years. And 
it was fun asking her about the elephants and the temple down the street from her. But she did allow these little girls to feel that they were math geniuses because they were always a smidgen ahead. Was there anything else that Claudia tried out? Well, she had her own experience with a savings club, and she did it with a bunch of other journalists. I cannot imagine a world in which this does not end in tears. That is what people told her and suspected was going to happen, but they were actually wrong. And when I started it, it was for my book. I was going to do it for one year. And I was told by, literally by experts, Americans are incapable of doing this. You have no honor. You'll forget. You won't pay your debts. You can't save. It was as if we had some national genetic defect or we couldn't do it. Well, I'm here to tell you we could and we did. And the fortunes of my little group, even within that one year, went up and down because it coincided with the recession. Every single person paid on time. Every single person walked away with $2,400 in cash um, one month during the height of the recession. And they begged me to continue. And it has been going on without one pause ever since. And I just I just deposited a check for my group since I was out of town on Wednesday of this week. I, I was fretting about it all day, worried I've got to get this to my friend so she can bring in the cash because I cannot be late with this money. And I did it. So Claudia's book came out in 2011, though. She's been doing the saving club since then? That's my understanding, yes. And note, that happened as her colleagues were being laid off due to turbulent times in the media industry. But despite those hard times, her friends, all journalists, continued to be part of the group. It even became more of a point of pride. I think that's part of the value of these savings clubs. The power of community pressure, right. So then here's your sum up. Political refuge and economic refuge, not always so separate. And the real story of immigration, which unites almost all groups who have come to America, is the way that all of our families managed to blend social and economic networks to support them both. And the other thing is, so many of these innovations came down to the simple need of supporting and educating the kids so that they can be taught and adults can get to work. Yeah, what I think is really interesting about her whole project is the idea that there are things that other people do around the world that could be of interest and value and that we, as Americans, could learn from. That's why it was fun to read her book. That's why it was so fun to listen to her talk to Carlos. You know, I didn't know about a quarantena, but I feel already like, how can I create, you know, a, a virtual quarantena situation when my wife, if we ever have kids, has something like that level of support around her? I mean, it's obvious it's better for all kinds of different reasons, and it just takes sometimes learning about it. And finally, there can be cases where more immigrants are actually more prosperous communities, more prosperous neighborhoods for everyone. Well, yeah. I mean, America is a much more prosperous nation thanks to immigrants. That is indisputable. So in the next episode of The Index, we'll tackle the dark, psychologically complex art of pricing. This is one area of uh, business and marketing, um, which is both a science and an art. You know, it tends to have um, a lot of emphasis on numbers, and it scares a lot of people away for that reason. But at the same time, uh, pricing decisions are full of psychology. You know, it's a way uh, that marketers can use to influence consumers. It's a way that consumers can fight back if they know enough. Till next time. Thanks, Saul. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. 
Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbine. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.